Hello, friends, and welcome to a new episode of Too Scared to Sleep. My name is Dylan, your smooth jazz host. And I'm Jake. <laughs> Jesus, I can't even follow that up. I'm Good. definitely sober, but I'm still bringing the heat, still bringing the thunder, still bringing the hail Satan. Thank you very much to my host, Jake Cantu. Oh, please don't do that. <laughs> please don't do no, that. No, I'm not going to keep doing that. That's not going to be a bit. All right, well, we've never had a listener message us and say, we don't like the stories of your failed love life. That's true. Well. What? They haven't messaged us, but the people that know me, uh, for example, my roommates who I'm putting on blast right now, do say, huh, it's interesting how you guys always talk about uh, your failing love life in the beginning of the... Yeah, fuck off. Fuck it's you. part of our life. Fuck it's very interesting. Listen, I never thought to myself that I would be 41 years old. And being single and back out in the dating scene. And it is a trip. And if anything else, it's a cautionary tale to love the one you're with and to make that relationship work because it is the pits being out here again. It really is. It's hard out here on these streets. It's hard out here on these streets. It's hard. Anyway, so it is the 20th of December. Five days away from Christmas. Five days away from Christmas. I have had the wildest ride as far as a month and a half is concerned. He has... Indeed. Yes. On election night, I uh, met through an online dating profile what I thought was the perfect, perfect woman for me. Clicked off all the boxes of the person that I was looking for. And it seemed to be going all right. We talked for about a week. We met up. Um, she was nervous. She was new to the dating dating scene. She is recently divorced. And it seemed okay. You know, I wasn't trying to pressure her to, to you know, to... to push anything really fast or anything like that but things were going pretty well um i thought right everything seemed to be going okay we were talking about you know um planning on spending more time together maybe seeing each other during the holidays you know i had bought her a christmas gift um because we had talked about christmas gifts and everything like that um we went for about a week without seeing each other because of one thing or another and um i started noticing that there was a little bit of pulling away Okay, so if you know anything about me, you know that my dad has obviously some supernatural powers to him. If you've heard our stories. <laughs> yes. Okay. Now, in the Christian in the Christian methodology, ideology, what they call my dad would be somebody who has the gift of discernment. That's what they call it within the church. Okay. You can call it whatever you want. I think if my dad had developed his supernatural powers, he would have been really good at reading tarot and mm. telling people their telling people their futures. I honestly yeah. think that he would. I mean, he's a really, he's a very intuitive and perceptive kind of guy. Um, he has, you know, uh, he has in more than one occasion um, interpreted people's dreams before with stunning accuracy and been able to give them advice on what he thought was going to be the future. And part of that is his special supernatural ability. And the other part of it is him being a very, very intuitive and perceptive person. All right. Now, I got that from him as well. And then what I did to double down on that is I went and got a psychology degree when I was in college. So once I get to know a person, you can start to um, you can start to uh, get an idea of what their actions are going to be based on the data that you've already collected on them. You can start to anticipate what they're going to do. Right? You can read them a lot better. You can read them a lot better. I'm very good at reading people. So 
this this girl seemed to be really really into me this woman seemed to be very much into me and we had a lot of things in common and we had a lot of complimentary wants and needs and hopes and dreams and all that other stuff and it seemed like a really good foundation for a long-lasting relationship that could have been that could have gone really well right but then over the last week i noticed that she was pulling away um less phone calls less texting um less attentiveness to it and part of me was like yeah this is exactly what's happening she's pulling away you're about to get dumped she's about to pull the plug on this thing and at the same time i was trying to tell myself no that's just your anxieties uh you're reading too much into it you know she's stressed it's the holidays she's got a lot going on you know it's it's one thing or another it's not what you think it is so we had planned to see each other on thursday tonight is sunday we were going to see each other on thursday so I had time to get dressed, get ready. We were going to go out to eat. I went and got her a dozen roses because I wanted to be sweet to her. And I got to her house and I gave her the roses. And the face that she made at me told me that this was all wrong. Yep. And, and that hurts. It That's hurts so rough. much, man. It was a big hurt. She gave me one kiss and then she gave me the goodbye hug. And I could feel it was the goodbye hug. Right? Yeah. And then she says, can we just talk for a second? And I knew exactly what was gonna, what was about to happen. Oh, yeah. So <clears throat> in and of myself, she doesn't even know this because what's the point in telling her? But in and of myself, I immediately pulled back emotionally. And I was like, this is happening. This is exactly what's going to happen. Do whatever you can to limit the amount of pain that you're about to feel. So we sit down on her couch and I said... I said, so this is where this is going, right? I mean, this is the part where you tell me that it's gone too, you know, too soon, too, too quick, too soon, too fast, and you're not ready to have a relationship, and you don't want to see us. You don't, you don't want to see me anymore. Is that what's going to happen? And she said, Well, I already had a speech going on. And I said, Well, is there anything I can say that's going to make it any better or change your mind? And she said, I don't think so. And so I got up to leave because it's like I'm about to have my heart broken, and I don't need that shit happening in your living room. I can go home and have that happen by myself as he did then and then she was like well you don't you don't even want to hear what i was going to say and i said okay so go i went sat back down on the couch and almost word for word what i had said (laughs) there was a lot of flurry language but i've heard it all before uh from people you know even alex said some of the same things that she did you know you're just a lot of fluff but masking the same message you're a nice guy and you're nice and you're compassionate and you're really sweet and you're very affectionate but i'm just not ready for a relationship and that's fine you know what if you feel that way great okay i'm not here to ruin your life i'm not here to ruin my own life that's fine so she said her she said her piece and there wasn't anything that i could say that was going to change change her mind so i left her house i had not because of the way that i eat i usually only eat like one meal a day right Mm -hmm. me too I had woken up that day and I had I had made myself an omelet like I usually do in the mornings, a two egg omelet, and then I had a protein shake for lunch. And so I was running on empty by seven o'clock that night. I get home at seven twenty, and I have nothing in my stomach. And I immediately started to drink Crown and Coke. Yes, he did. And I had two of them, and I messaged Dylan and I was like, Dylan, she broke up with me. I am heartbroken. I'm sending you money right now. I need more whiskey. Come and lament with me. Watch me Watch me fall apart. And I did exactly that. Yes. So by the time you got here at 8 o'clock, maybe 8.30, I was gone. Yep. He was, I could tell already, he was feeling it. Mm-hmm. Both the alcohol and the sad boy. And then I made myself two more in the span of an hour. 
and just got shit faced, which felt really good at the time. We we made a we made a fire. You made some s'mores. I sat out there, you know. I I I just I I threw it all up, mm-hmm. emotionally threw it all up. And later on that night, I threw it all up too. Yeah, that was rough. It was rough, but I got it out of my system. That you did. I did, and I decided that there's a there's a there's a formula out there that I've noticed, and that is that um, I get sad about these things for about a day. There's there's a there's a there's an exchange right there for the number of months that I talk to a woman. She gets one day of me being sad about her Mm -hmm. dumping me, not wanting to be in a relationship with me. So this girl got a day and a half of me being sad and depressed. So I was I woke up the next day on Friday and I did not miraculously have a hangover, but I definitely felt really, really depressed. But by Saturday, I was fine and I got it out of my system. The craziest part of this story, the part that you haven't even heard, Dylan. Oh, no. Is that I got to spend most of Saturday with my kids. My mm. ex was working in the morning. And so I went over there early because the kids, you know, it's just easier for me to go over there and be with the kids and, you know, get them breakfast and hang out with them and take them places, then take them back home. Then it yeah. is for her to drop them off. Well, anyway, it's easier on them. So I spent almost the whole afternoon over there. And then later on um, that same night, um, one of the one of the school parents from my kid's school is sick with COVID, like really sick, like on a ventilator sick in the hospital. Jesus. And so my ex asked me if I would go and watch the kids because she wanted to go to this prayer service that they were having for her. And I said, sure, that's fine. It's more time. It's more time that I get to spend with my kids. Not only that, but it's less time that I have to spend in this depression pit of a house that I have. Yeah. Because it is super lonely. If yeah. You don't have anywhere. And that was, and like I told you, the, the girl that I had been seeing, we hadn't been able to see each other for a week because she had her kids and she had, she, she thought she might have COVID and so she had to get tested and so we hadn't been able to see each other. So in my mind, I had this whole thing of we were going to spend the whole weekend together, mm-hmm. right? And that did not happen. So I didn't want to spend any more time. So I went back and saw my kids later on that night and then my ex went to that prayer thing and then she got back. And like I told you, I've known my ex since I was 16 years old. She was 18 years old. We've known each other for... 25 almost 26 years at this point all right and yeah. so we're, we're we've settled back into this thing where we're kind of friends and we're definitely teammates and co-parents for the kids so we were talking about stuff we were talking about christmas and who's going to have them because she's going to have them christmas eve and then i'm going to have them christmas day and she's going to have a family event but they're going to make sure that they social distance and they're going to make sure that they wear their masks and i told her that we would do the same at my christmas day event that i'm going with with my family and then she asked me if I was going to see this girl that I was dating because I had had to tell her, yeah, well, she had somebody test positive that was really close to her. And so she went and got tested and all this other stuff. She wanted to know if that was going to be a thing. And I said, oh, we're not going to have to worry about that anymore. Oh, she goes, really? And I said, yeah. And so I told her a very abridged version of what had happened. And I, she was like, well, what happened? And I was like, well, you know, I'd, I felt like I could talk about it a little bit. And I told her, well, she just wasn't ready. And, you know, she had just got onto the dating scene and she really hadn't gone on any a lot of dates or or been with you know been with anybody and so you know she just it was all new wow well you're bearing my soul you piece of shit sorry i was was responding to a comment and here's what my ex said she goes well i i I talked to a bunch of guys online i I only went on a date with one guy and it's and it's going fine now i was like fuck off (laughs) number one fuck off with your with your success story but two it's true what she says if you find the right person and that right person is ready for you, then it's going to work out. 
And I've said it before and I'll say it again, even as much of it, even as there's a little part of me that obviously feels like it's a competition to see who's going to get into a long-term relationship that works Yeah. before the other one. But at the same time, I don't really wish any evil or ill of my ex. I want her to be happy because if she's happy, the kids are happy as much as I want to be happy too. But it was just weird. It's like, it's one of those things where it's like, I don't know. It works better that we're friends, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. For the kids, for the sake of the kids, it definitely works better. So. For the band. For the band. For the band. For the band. Anyway, that's my story. Dating sucks. It Dating does. Is yeah. And that's all we're going to say about that, because that person was not in my life long enough to warrant any more time. Absolutely. Not in life, and not definitely not on the podcast. No, that's it. No more. No mas. No mas. That's no it. No mas. All right. Anyway, Dylan, how you been? Uh, I've been doing pretty good. It's almost Christmas. Yeah, it's almost Christmas. Don't really care. Um, <gasps> I'm sorry, that. dude. I'm not a holiday person. I just, I want, okay. Do I'm you not, want to hang out with me on Christmas? I'm going to go see my parents. Okay. So I want to have lunch with me. Um, But I don't know. I'm not like... I'm just not a holiday person, man. I've never been that interested in holidays. It's always, I mean, I've always had like a smaller family, which is fine because too much family gets overwhelming and it just gets to be too much. But like, it's always just been like pretty much me, my mom and my stepdad. Yeah. And it feels like it's so much effort for no reason, <laughs> you know, and I don't want to be an asshole. I'm not trying to be rude when I say that. Like, you know, I get to, you know, eat, you know, good food and a mom usually puts a lot of work into it and I always appreciate it, but it's just like, this is the same thing we do every night just with way more effort put into the food. It's never made that much sense to me to just do all that. Like if you have a big family, I can understand doing it more because you don't get to see these people all the time. I live in the same town as my mom and my stepdad. The only person in my family that I have regular contact with that I don't see that often is my dad because he lives in Georgia, but I still text him all the time, you know? So it's just, I'm not a big holiday person. It's never been a big deal for me. I'm not trying to shit on the holidays. I don't want to be like the edgy guy that's like, man, fuck Christmas. I don't care about Halloween. <laughs> like, Halloween is cool. I love Halloween. I just don't care about anything else. And that's just... That's fair. I mean, it's... Yeah. I try to explain it, and most people don't really get it. And I feel selfish when I explain it, because everybody's like, but you get to see your family, and you get to spend time with them, and, you know, it's about togetherness. And I'm like, I don't care. I can see my family anytime that I want to. That's true. You know, it's not that big a deal for me personally, just because I don't have a big family. It's I'm not, not going to fault deal. you, but don't worry about it. Thank you. Um, but anyway, if you okay. want to hang out Christmas Eve, I got no plans for Christmas Eve. I'm going to be in this depression cave. Nice. At Christmas Eve. Uh, I'm working on Christmas Eve, but I think we're closing early. So, yeah, we can fuck it up. Let's do it. Cool. Let's get shit face drunk. Nice. And watch horror movies again. Too scared to watch. Too Christmas scared edition. to watch. It'll Dude, have you times. seen the movie Krampus? No. Dude, we gotta watch that. Right, That's our watch Halloween Krampus. special. We could watch Rare Exports, too. What the fuck is that? It's like a Finnish movie about Santa being like a monster. Ooh, fuck yeah. It's on Amazon Prime. We can watch it. Fuck yeah. We can Let's fuck do with, it. We can fuck with that one. Hell yeah. Awesome. Um, got I, Christmas Eve plans. Hell yeah. Better than I was doing. Hell yeah, brother. Hell yeah, brother. <laughs> um, I do actually have a positive update in terms of... Oh, I hate the face that you're making right now. So we got through Jake's bad... I don't know how bad romance goes. I don't know why I tried that. Oh, Dylan. Um, Dylan, I'm so happy for you. But uh, 
I, well, it's I'm not I'm trying not to get ahead of myself. Don't you get know. ahead of yourself. I've gotten ahead of myself before. We all know that. Yes, and it was unpleasant. It was unpleasant. But all of it's unpleasant. Uh, I did get to see one of my very good friends who I love very dearly, uh, who is the one who actually made our podcast logo. But I got to hang out with her again because she's back from college now, uh, and she agreed to go on a date with me, and that's pretty exciting. So she's going on a trip. I'm so excited. But uh, when she gets back, she does want to hang out. Bursting, and I am trying right to think of like the perfect plan for it. You know, I don't want to go too hard to start, but I have a pretty good idea. I'd love to talk about this more. Um, like, how does a person who's in their twenties go on a date? Because I know how a person in their forties goes on a date, and it's pretty vanilla and lame sometimes. Uh, well, let me tell you something, Jake. I don't fucking know. We're gonna figure it out. Listen, we're investigative <laughs> no journalists. We can research this shit. We'll figure it out. Okay, I do have a good idea. I lost track of where I started this and what parts I'm going to have to cut out. So anyway, I did um, get my wonderful, wonderful friend to agree to a date with me. She cut that whole thing out just in case this goes, this crashes and burns. I hope it doesn't, but still. Yeah, no, definitely. Does she listen? I think so. Okay, we should definitely cut it out. Yeah. Just wait. We'll just cut it out, save it, and then later on, like, you know. In like six months from now, you can just post it. And we can talk about how wonderful it was and how excited we were for you. And she can hear this. Exactly. And it'll be a wonderful thing for her to listen to. So I've been talking to one of my friends um, just about like this whole thing. Because she doesn't know uh, Sabine. Mm -hmm. So it's been like good to get an an objective objective standpoint. Exactly. So we've been talking a lot about that. And she has been fucking hyping me up so much for this shit. You should be hyped. Um, but that's like the big thing that she's seen is like, you got to manifest that shit. Don't say do. if it goes, don't say it's going you know, to go well, if it'll go bad, you say it's going to go well, it's going to go good. So that's what I'm trying to do. That's what we're focusing on. I'm just trying to manifest it, man. You know, mm-hmm. hoping things go well, but it's nice to actually have a positive update for once. I know. Um, so happy for you and so fucking happy for yeah you. if not for us talking about it, uh, when me and Cade came over, I, nobody knows, but you and Cade and um the girl i've been talking to that's been helping my friend's been talking to me about helping out with it um it's been a secret trying not to like blow it up and jinx it you know so uh, you can feel it oh i saged my house today nice i did see on your uh instagram story yep i decided you know what it's a good day there's lots of sunshine open up the doors and windows let's sage this shit out let's get the energy realigned in this fucking house i'm fucking feeling it man can you feel it this shit feels crisp it does like a fresh dollar bill that's right anyway welcome to too scared to sleep welcome motherfuckers to sleep we have got got a lot going on we got some shit going do you think that we're going to be able to post this before the new year we should right yeah we this got two episode? weeks what are you talking about this episode's coming out in two days bro awesome excellent yeah okay because then the first episode of the new year is going to be season three, episode one. Yeah. All right. Let's start on start on your topic before I fall asleep. Okay. Yeah. So can I'm you tell gonna... this, the the energies have been realigned in this yes, house? Yes, I can. I actually can. It feels better in here. It really does. Mm-hmm. God, fucking sage. I love it. Hell yeah, man. Okay, so I'm gonna go ahead and start with my topic because my topic is gonna be significantly shorter than Jake's. Yeah, mine is. Mine's gonna go hard, but it goes a little while. It goes a little long. Oh yeah. Uh, mine's also going to go hard, but I know that if you listen to this podcast, you know, things get rough. We talk about some uncomfortable, dark, violent matter. And this is going to be one of those episodes. This is going to be an especially bad episode. Okay. I'm just going to go ahead and put out a, a trigger warning in the beginning of this. 
Um, there is a lot of sexual assault in my uh, topic. It's incredibly rough. Um, I have omitted some of the more grisly details, but there's just so much to talk about. So just going to throw it out there. I'm going to be talking about Miss Lisa Montgomery. So in less than one month from today, on January 12th of 2021, the federal government is planning to execute Lisa Montgomery for the crime she committed only a few days before Christmas in the year 2004. If she is executed, this would make her the first woman the United States has executed in 70 years. It's, it's coming up soon. It's kind of a big deal. That's deep. Um, there is a large number of people and growing support groups that actually want to save her from the death penalty because of the horrific trauma that she dealt with as a child and the way the trial was handled, which we will get into as we move forward. So uh, we're going to start jumping right into the rough stuff, so I hope you're ready. Um, as is the case with so many violent criminals, she was born to an abusive, alcoholic mother whose pregnant drinking caused permanent brain damage in Lisa. Fetal alcohol syndrome is not fun. Oh my god. Yeah, out the gate with the fetal alcohol syndrome. And do you think it gets better? Because it doesn't. Not on this podcast, it doesn't get any better. No, it does not. Uh, and of course, an alcoholic, abusive father... Who began his repeated sexual assault of her when she was 11 years old? Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. <sighs> this one's gonna be spicy in a bad way. We talk about this all the time. About the real evil in this world. Oh, yeah. Is not a de- is not the, the odds that you're going to see a demon or be possessed by a demon are very slim to nil. But this kind of evil happens all the time. Oh, yeah. And it is horrifying. And prevalent. All right. Let's keep going. Oh, yes. my God. So, uh, after a few years of the assault, Lisa's mother, Judy, actually did file for divorce against Lisa's father, um, and during the divorce proceedings, she claimed to have witnessed at least one of the assaults on Lisa. Now, if you look up Lisa Montgomery, you can find the same information that I did here. Um, there is two sentences that she said about, the, uh, about her witnessing what happened. I read them and they physically made me uncomfortable, so I will not repeat those sentences, but it was, for two sentences, it was impactful. Um, it was rough. So, um, let's see. She did claim to witness one of the assaults on Lisa. Uh, it did grant her custody of Lisa and her sister, but what their mother Judy failed to mention was her own abusive tendencies and abhorrent treatment of her children. Mm. Continuing the cycle of violence and trauma against her own daughters, Judy often beat Lisa and her sister by whipping them with belts, cords, wire hangers, etc. Uh, and in one instance, I hope you're ready for this one, Jake. Um, she beat the family dog to death with a fucking shovel in front of her children as a punishment. Oh my god. The dog? Yeah. There's a special place in hell. Oh yeah. So, things are not going very well for Lisa Montgomery. Um, luckily for Lisa's sister, Diane, shortly after their mother's divorce, she was taken away by CPS and given to a loving family who helped her heal and recover, um, but the whole time she remained worried about her sister, Lisa. They were not able to get Lisa out of the home, and Diane was not able to locate Lisa um, because uh, at the time... Or, I'm sorry, uh, because by the time Lisa was a teenager, they had already moved 20 different times. 
going between Judy's different abusive and deranged husbands uh, and having to deal with their own poverty issues. So constantly moving around, still being treated horribly. Uh, while her mother did divorce from her father, uh, Lisa was not done being abused by older men as her mother began prostituting her out to older men. So frequently and violently that Lisa began frequently disassociating uh, and obviously developed intense PTSD. Mm -hmm. During this time, Lisa was still a minor, and this is the part, well, this is one of the many parts that disgusted me the most, uh, was that she told many people about what was happening in her personal life. She told a family member that was in law enforcement, and he did not do anything about it. He didn't follow through. Even school officials, teachers, and I think like the principal or something like that, but numerous teachers noticed her coming into class with dirty and torn clothing. They noticed her grades declining, and they even ended up switching her to special education classes. But none of these people did anything to help Lisa or even try to intervene. Jesus Christ. I was just reading something that says Lisa's first words were, don't spank me, it hurts. Mm -hmm. That's fucking horrible. Oh, yeah. And that... Over the course of time, she's been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, temporal lobe epilepsy, complex PTSD, dissociative disorder, psychosis, traumatic brain injury, and most likely fetal alcohol syndrome. Mm -hmm. Why are we executing a person like this? I'll tell you why as we get to the end. I know, but at the same time. Oh, I know. Yeah, it's rough. So when Lisa turned 18 at the behest of her mother, she ended up marrying her stepbrother. <sighs> yeah. Uh, and in under five years, she had four children with him as he repeatedly abused and assaulted her as her family had done her whole life. And after the birth of their fourth child, he forced Lisa to undergo a sterilization surgery to ensure that she could never have children again. And over the course of her marriage to him, her mental health continued on steady decline until her eventual divorce from him. Now, Lisa was still prone to disassociative and delusional episodes. Her children would often witness her staring off into nothing, uh, acting like the world around her wasn't real, or acting oddly childlike or inappropriately in public. Um, one of the reports that I read from, I think it was one of her daughters, said that at one point she just began singing loudly and like sticking her arms out and spinning around in circles while they were like in a grocery store or on the street or something like that. And she said that it was, you know, scary to watch because she didn't know what was happening, but it was also super embarrassing because it's a little kid and she doesn't understand like what's happening here. It's just, it's rough, man. Uh, and as a result of her trauma, she also drank heavily. She was involved in numerous car crashes. Uh, she continued sex work, struggled with jobs and relationships, and continued moving constantly. By the time she was 34 years old, they had moved a total of 61 times. Mm. Yeah, she had been divorced and married again in that time. Uh, and she was also known to have told multiple partners that she was pregnant with their children despite her surgery from earlier in her life. Um, it's unclear if that was a lie in an attempt to keep them with her or if it was, you know, just delusion. She actually thought that she was pregnant. Um, it's, it's hard to tell with some of these things, you know. Two days before her final crime, she was contacted by her abusive ex-husband, the initial one, uh, her stepbrother 
who told her that he wanted custody of their children, uh, and he intended to get that by going to court and using her delusion, including the fact that she told her current husband that she was pregnant against her so that he could build his case against her and try and get custody. So, racked with the guilt of her actions, the trauma of her entire life, and the despair at the thought of losing her children, Lisa Montgomery was pushed to her breaking point and committed her most violent act yet. Lisa left her home, uh, giving the reason of going Christmas shopping, specifically looking for a dog for her children. Uh, she had gotten in contact with a dog breeder. This was 23-year-old Bobby Joe Stinnett, who also, ha or who also happened to be eight months pregnant at mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. Stinnett was well-known as a dog breeder and uh, had agreed to meet with Montgomery about specifically a rat terrier that she was saying that she wanted to buy. Uh, while they were meeting up in Stinnett's home, Montgomery attacked Stinnett from behind. She strangled the pregnant woman to death with a rope that she found. And when Stinnett had dropped to the ground, Lisa Montgomery cut the eight-month-old baby out of Stinnett's womb. Just uh, like that. Mm-hmm. On the drive home, she clamped the baby's umbilical cord, she cleaned the baby with wet wipes, and came home shortly afterwards, telling her husband that while on the way... Uh, to go Christmas shopping, she went into labor and gave birth to the child. Mm -hmm. She'd been telling her husband for months that she was pregnant, so he believed her. Um, and for that day, they took care of the baby. Um, he was excited just to have a kiddo, you know? He had no idea what was going on. About an hour after her attack, Bobby Joe Stinnett's mother found her daughter lying in a pool of blood and said that her daughter's wounds looked as though, quote, her stomach had exploded. Uh, and she immediately called the authorities, who unsuccessfully attempted to revive Bobby Joe. Jesus fucking Christ, man. Oh, yeah. That got real quick. Oh, yeah. And dark. I, this one was going to be a little bit short, but mm. it packs a fucking punch. Um, now, in a surprising change of pace, the police team is actually pretty on top of this shit. Uh, thanks to their lengthy online chats and the swift, swift work of the forensic team, uh, the very next day, the police entered the home of Montgomery and found her on the couch watching TV and holding the baby that she had just taken from the woman she murdered. And after a DNA test confirmed the baby's identity, the baby was placed back in the care of their father and Montgomery was arrested, facing the charges of murder and the federal offense of kidnapping resulting in death, which is the charge that brought her the death penalty, actually. So... Now we're into the trial portion of it, and we're going to figure out exactly what happened. Um, now, she's had a really bad life, obviously. Horrible. Yes. The crime that she committed was also terrible. But during the trial, um, it was said on her behalf that she was delusional at the time of the murder and the kidnapping. So they sought for an insanity defense, which ultimately failed, even though Montgomery had been diagnosed with... Bipolar disorder, depression, psychosis, PTSD, borderline personality disorder, temporal lobe epilepsy, uh, most likely fetal alcohol or fetal alcohol syndrome, which induced brain damage, and frequent disassociative episodes. Now, the big thing about this was that aside from just a mishandling of how to approach her guilt in the situation. At one point, they also tried to say that it was her brother that did it, mm -hmm. um, which didn't go well because he had like a super solid alibi. So they just did not know how to handle this case at all. They didn't know how to defend her. They didn't know how to work anything. 
I don't know what was going on with her legal team, but they dropped the fucking ball, whatever they did. Obviously, uh, Lisa Montgomery was sentenced to death, but there's been a lot of outcry for this ruling to be overturned. Uh, this comes from the reasoning behind her death sentence. Many believe her legal team to have been incompetent and simply not known how to defend her. They neglected to inform the jury about the extent of the decades of abuse and damage she had undergone. The jury had never seen the brain scans that corroborated the physical brain damage that she had, which directly impact her actions, uh, her aggression, and her general perception of the world. And instead, like I said, they tried to blame Montgomery's stepbrother, who did have an alibi, uh, and go for an insanity defense. But due to the lack of history on Montgomery and the lack of the evidence of the horrific, or not evidence, the lack of the um, demonstration of the horrific nature of her general upbringing, and due to the horrific nature of the crime, the jury deliberated less than five hours and returned with a guilty verdict recommending that the sentence be death. This is disgusting. Oh, yeah. It's a rough one. I have some... I, I, I've got this article. I don't know if you want me to read it. It's from the New York Times. But it, it talks about the defense. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. We can get to that one in just a okay, second. Okay, go ahead. Keep going. Um, I don't want to steer your thunder. Yeah, no, you're fine. I'm on my last point now. Um, but as it stands right now, in the midst of the global pandemic, they still seek to execute her. Uh, and while nobody is arguing for her freedom, many people believe that due to her intense history of trauma, that death should at least be off the table, you know? And instead, she should serve life in prison um, with hopefully some sort of psychiatric help and treatment. The way that the defense handled the situation, it seems that death was, a, you know, it's the ultimate Nobody punishment. Nobody gave a shit for her. Yeah, exactly. None of these lawyers cared about her. No, they absolutely didn't. It's disgusting um, what happened to this woman. Oh, yeah, absolutely. From start to finish. Yes, she murdered somebody. I get that. Okay. She did some. She did a heinous crime. Absolutely. But this woman is not in her right mind. No, not at all. And like I'm saying, nobody is saying that they are advocating for her freedom. Everybody acknowledges the extent of the horrific acts that she's done. But she's had this rough of a life and a legal team that just didn't give a shit and didn't know how to handle it. They at least want to see her not be put to death. Evil men and toxic masculinity destroyed this woman's life. Oh, yeah. And then just toxic masculinity and apathy towards women and the struggles that they go through are putting her to death now. Mm -hmm. And it's just fucking disgusting. Oh, absolutely. I, I do definitely agree. I think there is no reason that this woman should be put to death for, you know, it's a terrible crime. But when you look at everything else that has happened, it's just ridiculous. She doesn't deserve to die. She no. should. She needs help. Yeah, she's needed help. Her she obviously life. she obviously is a danger to herself and others when she's cognizant enough to know what she's doing. But whether she knows from one day to the next what right or wrong is, according to this New York Times article that I've read, mm -hmm. is just it's it's horrific that they're going to put her to death. She deserves help. Yeah, one hundred percent. She may never be, you know, she obviously she never needs to leave a psychiatric hospital for the criminally insane or anything like that. That's where she needs to be. But she doesn't deserve to she doesn't deserve to die. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I 100% I agree. It's just terrible the life that she has had to live and just the way that life and the world and the system has fucked her from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that's her. That's Lisa Montgomery. 
Um, it's not, you know, like the standard crazy serial killer, you know, it was only one murder, but I just thought that it was really interesting, especially with it being less than one month from when we are recording this and when this will be released, that she's going to be executed. It's a hot button issue right now. Most of the articles that I could find were basically, you know, it was article after article and petition after petition to get her off the, off of death row. The Trump administration has put to death like six people recently, mm-hmm. um, so they've been pushing for it, but they are hoping that they can at least get it pushed out enough where President-elect Joe Biden will come in, and he had plans of removing the death penalty entirely, from what I'd heard. Um, they're hoping to appeal to him to remove the death sentence on her. Mm, grant her clemency. Yeah. I, I hope that it works. I... I have gone back and forth on the subject of the death penalty um, just throughout my life. But in this particular instance, I think that there is no reason for this woman to be put to death. It was a horrible crime that she committed. But, I mean, just look at everything that happened to this poor woman, you know? It's disgusting. She needs to pay for her crimes, but not with her life. But everything she did, everything that happened to her before and everything that's happened to her since is terrible. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, a, it's a miscarriage of justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. Um, and also, from everything that I heard, the baby that she had kidnapped was fine. Um, they didn't really follow up suit, like, a lot on the articles that I was reading um, just about her. But, you know, she didn't kill the baby. She took the baby and she was taking care of it. I'm not trying to justify what she did in any way, but I'm just saying, at least she didn't also kill the baby. But anyway, it's that's just... Lisa Montgomery gross and horrible oh yeah this is gonna be a dark episode this one's gonna be rough (laughs) this one's gonna be rough start with heartbreak then go into this whole just perfect storm and then we're gonna get into yours which i'm excited and horrified for yeah because it's just as bad listen if we don't yeah we're gonna have to have a, a a warning that it is definitely a dark episode oh yeah anyway okay we're gonna take a quick break and we'll be back with my topic yeehaw yeehaw Recording it now. I don't know if we if we if we if we mentioned this earlier, but I saged my house today. Yes, and we, did. we aligned some good energy in this place. Things are fucking turning up. It is lit. Things are happening for the better. All right. So, on that note, let's talk about a really dark subject now. It's yeah. gonna get just as dark. It's disgusting. We have the energy. We have the hype. We just spent our break talking about merch and making some posts on our Instagram that you've probably seen. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just went from like, now to keep track of where we're at, uh, it was the low of Jake's heartbreak, a little bit of a high in me uh, going on a date sometime soon, then the super low of my topic, then we're up a little bit because we get to talk about like merch and we got jazzed about that, uh, and then now we're just going straight back down into the super low with Jake's hardcore topic. It is disgusting. Here we go. Are you ready for this? I'm, I'm going to be talking about ready. Edmund Kemper, the co-ed killer. Fuck yeah. Oh my god. He's an, Ameri- he's an American serial killer, rapist, cannibal, and necrophile who murdered 10 people, including his paternal grandparents and his mother. Edmund Kemper was 6 foot 9 inches tall. Is 6 foot 9 inches tall. He's still alive. Yikes. He's noted for that and also of having an IQ of 145. Is that high or low? I don't know how IQ works. 100 is average. Oh, shit. Okay. Fuck. 
and I think 150 or 160, and it's like, yeah, it's it's high. Okay. Okay, so here's a good grief. There's all right. So here's here's the summary of everything. He was born in California. Kemper had a disturbing upbringing. His parents divorced. And as a child, he moved to Montana with his abusive mother before returning to California, where he murdered his paternal grandparents when he was 15. He was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic by court psychiatrist and sentenced to the Atascadero State Hospital as a criminally insane juvenile. At the age of 21, after convincing psychiatrists he was rehabilitated, Kemper was regarded as non-threatening by his future victims. He targeted young female hitchhikers during his killing spree, luring them into his vehicle and driving them to secluded areas where he would murder them before taking their corpses back to his home to be decapitated, dismembered, and violated. Kemper then murdered his mother and one of her friends before turning himself in to authorities. He was found sane and guilty at his trial in 1973, and he requested the death penalty for his crimes. But because at the time capital punishment was suspended in California, he instead received eight concurrent life sentences and since then has been incarcerated in the California medical facility because he is criminally insane. Oh, yeah. Okay, so that is the summary. He was born in 1948. He was the middle child and the only son born to his mother. Um, You know, he's got stepbrothers. Edmund Kemper's father was a World War II veteran. And after the war, he tested nuclear weapons in the Pacific Proving Grounds before returning to California where he worked as an electrician. His mother often complained that the father's job was a, was a menial job and later said suicide missions in wartime and the atomic bomb testings were nothing compared to living with her. And that Jesus. his wife, yeah, this is what he said about her and that his wife affected him more than 396 days and nights of fighting on the front did. So... Edmund Kemper's dad is saying that his mom is a fucking nightmare. God damn. Can relate. Can relate. No, I'm kidding. He was holy mother of Christ. When he was born, he weighed 13 pounds. Oh, that's so much, baby. Holy shit. And he was a head taller than his peers by the age of four. Early on, he exhibited antisocial behavior such as cruelty to animals, the McDonald triad. Mm-hmm. At the age of 10, he buried a pet cat alive. Once it died, he dug it up, decapitated it, and mounted its head on a spike. What yeah. the fuck? Disturbed from the beginning. Kemper oh, later damn. stated that he derived pleasure from successfully lying to his family about killing the cat. Oh, boy. At the age of 13, he killed another family cat when he perceived it to be favoring his younger sister over him, and he kept pieces of it in his closet until his mother found them. <sighs> Jesus. My God. I know that Edmund Kemper is really something, but who, buddy, this is going to be a fun one. I mean, if you have a child that exhibits this kind of disturbing behavior, he is a danger to you and his siblings. What keeps him from murdering? If he starts off as a cat, if he starts off by killing a cat because it favors his younger sister, what happens if you start favoring the younger sister and he kills his sister? Oh, yeah. No, there is... That is a danger to everyone that he lives with. Okay, I'm going to keep going. Because there's... Usually when we do these topics, there's usually six to seven pages of notes when we write when we write these things up. Edmund Kemper was so prolific that there are ten pages of notes to this fucking thing. Ye fucking ha. Kemper had a dark fantasy life. He performed rites with his younger sister's dolls that culminated in his removing their heads and hands. And on one occasion when his elder sister 
teased him and asked him why he did not try to kiss his teacher, he replied, if I kiss her, I'd have to kill her first. I dislike that. He also recalled that as a young boy, he would sneak out of his house and, armed with his father's bayonet, go to his second grade teacher's house to watch her through the windows. And stated in later interviews that some of his favorite games to play as a child were gas chamber and electric chair in which he asked his younger sister to tie him up and flip an imaginary switch. He would then tumble over and writhe on the floor, pretending that he was being executed by gas inhalation or electric shock. Yikes. fuck? This guy is disturbed. He also had a near-death experience as a child, once when his elder sister tried to push him in front of a train, and another time when she successfully pushed him into the deep end of a swimming pool where he almost drowned. So close. So close to what I just said earlier. At the age of 14, Kemper ran away from home in an attempt to reconcile with his father in Van Nuys, California. Once there, he learned that his father had remarried and had a stepson. Kemper stayed with his father for a short while until his father sent him to live with his paternal grandparents, who lived on a ranch in the mountains of North Fork, California. Kemper hated living there. He described his grandfather as senile and said that his grandmother was constantly emasculating me and my grandfather. This is probably where his mom got it. Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that any of this is the mom's fault. No, there are definitely some things uh, that are out of your control. All right, let's start talking about the murders, because this guy gets it. He starts it up. Here we go. This is going to be a hard episode to name, because there's not a lot of goofing in this. Mm-mm. I missed a part here. All right. Kemper had a close relationship with his father and was devastated when his parents separated in 1957, causing him to be raised by his mom in Helena, Montana. He had a severely dysfunctional relationship with his mother, a neurotic, domineering alcoholic who frequently belittled, humiliated, and abused him. Um, his mother often made her sl- made her son sleep in a locked basement because she feared that he would harm his sisters. Um, I mean, I yeah. get it. She regularly mocked him for his large size. He already stood six foot four at the age of fifteen and derided him as a real weirdo. She also refused to show him affection out of fear that she would turn him gay and told the young Kemper that he reminded her of his father and that no woman would ever love him. Kemper later described her as a sick, angry woman, and it has been postulated postulated that she suffered from borderline personality disorder. Yeah. This is fun. Good God. At the age of 14... No, that's where I did it. Okay. So, here's, here's here's when the murders start. On August 27, 1964, at the age of 15, Kemper was sitting at the kitchen table with his grandmother, Maud Matilda Huey Kemper, when they had an argument. Enraged, Kemper stormed off and retrieved a rifle that his father, his grandfather had given him for hunting. He then re-entered the kitchen and fatally shot his grandmother in the head before, before firing twice more into her back. Some accounts mention that she also suffered multiple post-mortem stab wounds with a kitchen knife. When his grandfather also named Edmund Kemper, the first, mm-hmm. returned from the grocery store. Kemper went outside and fatally shot him in the driveway. He was unsure what to do next, so he phoned his mother, who told him to contact the local police. Kemper called the police and, want, and waited to be taken into custody. After his arrest, Kemper said that he just wanted to see what it felt like to kill Grandma and testified that he killed his grandfather so he would not have to find out that his wife was dead. A psychiatrist oh. who interviewed Kemper at this point and at length, during his adulthood, wrote, In his way, he had avenged the rejection of both his father and his mother. Kemper's crimes were deemed incomprehensible for a 15-year-old to commit, and court psychiatrists diagnosed him as a paranoid schizophrenic, then sent him to the state hospital. Woof. 
Mm-hmm. When he was there at the Atascadero State Hospital, um, the California Youth Authority psychiatrists and social workers disagreed with the court psychiatrist's diagnoses. Their reports stated that Kemper showed no flight of ideas, no interference with thought, no expression of delusions or hallucinations, and no evidence of bizarre thinking, which are exactly what you would need to be to be diagnosed to paranoid schizophrenic. He doesn't have any of those things. Mm-hmm. He's on another level, man. They also yeah. observed him to be intelligent and introspective. Initial testing measured his IQ at 136, over two standard devi- deviations above the average, which I told you was 100. Mm-hmm. He was re-diagnosed with a less severe condition, a personality trait disturbance, passive-aggressive type. Later on in his time at Tascadero, Kemper was given another IQ test, which gave a higher result of 145. Kemper endeared himself to a psychiatrist by being a model prisoner and was trained to administer psychiatric tests to the other inmates. One of his like psych- that. Yeah. One of his psychiatrists later said he was a very good worker, and this, is not <clears throat> and this is not typical of a sociopath, which is true. He really took pride in his work. If you look at it, you think to yourself, he's probably a sociopath, but at the same time, he doesn't show any of those. He doesn't show – he shows the lack of empathy, mm-hmm. but the rest of it, being able to be a model, a model inmate, um, having this high IQ – being very sociable, he was a very talkative guy. That's why there's so much, there's so much data on this guy, and there were so many articles that I could find because he talked about his murders and he talked about all of it all the time. He is something on a different level, and there's something that I haven't talked about in a long time that I, that I've always talked about. That there are people out there that are like this Edmund Kemper that are just they're not even human. Mm-hmm. They're like on another level of predator. Yeah, they're a league of their own. They are in their own league and this is the kind of thing um let's see kemper was also met and made a became a member of the jc's while in atascadero and said he developed some new tests and some new scales on the mmpi specific specifically an overt hostility scale during his work with the atascadero psychiatrist the mmpi is a personality test after his second arrest Later on, Kemper said that he was in, that being able to understand how these tests functioned allowed him to manipulate his psychiatrist and admitted that he had learned a lot from the sex offenders whom he administered tests to. For example, they avoid they told him to avoid leaving witnesses and and it was best to kill a woman after raping her. That's what he learned Yikes. from doing these things. So again, He's taking the data that he's he's taking the raw data and making himself into an even more evolved serial killer later on. That's no bueno. This guy is in a different on a different level. All right. On December 18th, 1969, his 21st birthday, Kemper was released on parole from Atascadero. Against the recommendations of psychiatrists at the hospital, he was released into the care of his mother, who had remarried, taken a different name, and divorced again and was living alone. He's living in Aptos, California, a short drive from where she worked as an admin assistant at the at, the, at UC Santa Cruz. Okay, so she's working at the college. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is important. This plays later on in the story. Like of I always course. Like to say. We need to get a t-shirt that, that says that. Yeah, this plays yeah. later on in the story. That's pretty good. Kemper later demonstrated further to a psychiatrist that he was rehabilitated, and on November 29, 1972, his juvenile records were permanently expunged. So... The last report from his probation psychiatrist read, If I were to see this patient without having any history available or getting any history from him, I would think that we're dealing with a very well-adjusted young man who had initiative, intelligent, and who was free of any psychiatric illnesses. It is my opinion 
that he has made a very excellent response to the years of treatment and rehabilitation, and I would see no psychiatric reason to consider him to be of any danger to himself or to any member of society. And since it may allow him more freedom as an adult to develop his potential, I would consider it reasonable to have a permanent expunction of his juvenile records. Wow, congratulations. You played yourself. This guy is, I would call it a human predator, but he's not even human. He's a monster. Oh, yeah. In human in human skin. Mm-hmm. 100%. While staying with his mother, Kemper attended community college in accordance with his parole requirements and had hoped that he would become a police officer, though he was rejected because of his size. At the time of his release, Kemper stood six foot nine, Fucking which led to his nickname wolf. Big Ed. Kemper maintained relationships with the Santa Cruz police officers despite his rejection to join the force and became a self-described friendly nuisance at a bar called the Jury Room, which was a popular hangout for local law enforcement officers. He was just one of those guys who hung around with them all the time. He worked a series of menial jobs before gaining employment with the State of California Highway Division. Um, during this time, his relationship with his mother remained toxic and hostile. The two were having frequent arguments that their neighbors often overheard. Kemper later described the arguments he had with his mother around, around this time, stating the following. My mother and I started right on in horrendous battles, just horrible battles, violent and vicious. I've never been in such a vicious verbal battle with anyone. I would go to fists with a man, but this was my mother, and I couldn't stand the thought of my mother and I doing these things. She insisted on it and just over stupid things. I remember one roof razor was over whether I should have my teeth cleaned. What the fuck? When he had, sta- when he had saved enough money, Kemper moved out to live with a friend in Alameda, California. There, he still complained about of being unable to get away from his mother because she regularly phoned him and paid him surprise visits. Oof. He often had financial difficulties, which resulted in his frequently returning to his mother's apartment. At a Santa Cruz beach, Kemper met, met a student from Turlock High School to whom he became engaged in March of 1973. But the engagement was broken off after Kemper's second arrest and his fiance's parents requested her name not be revealed to the public. Hmm. The same year that he began working for the highway division, Kemper was hit by a car while riding a motorcycle that he had recently purchased. Oh, no. <laughs> same, bro. His aim was his arm was badly injured in the crash and he received fifteen thousand dollars, which adjusted for inflation is about ninety thousand dollars in today's money. That's some uh, money. Mm-hmm. There was a civil suit and that's how he got this. As he was driving around, um he uh yeah. He was driving around in a nineteen sixty nine Ford Galaxy he bought with a part of his settlement money. He noticed a large number of young women hitchhiking and began storing plastic bags, knives, blankets, and handcuffs in his car. Oh, that's fun. He be- he then began picking up young women and peacefully letting them go. According to Kemper, he picked up around one hundred and fifty such hitchhikers before he felt homicidal sexual urges when he which he called his little zapples. And began acting on them. Which he called his what? Little zapples. Jesus Christ, this guy. Fuck, that's so much worse. A monster in human skin. Oh, God. Between May 1972 and April 1973, Kemper killed eight people. He would pick up female students who were hitchhiking and take them to isolated areas where he would shoot, stab, smother, or strangle them. He would then take their bodies back to his home where he would decapitate them, perform... Never mind. Sex acts with their severed heads. And had sex with their corpses and then dismembered them. Good God. That's certainly something. 
Mm -hmm. During his 11-month murder spree, he killed five college students, one high school student, his mother, and his mother's best friend. Kemper has stated in interviews that he often searched for victims after having arguments with his mother and that she refused to introduce him to women attending the university where she worked. He recalled she would say, you're just like your father. You don't deserve to get to know them. Psychiatrist and Kemper himself have espoused the belief that the young women were surrogates for his ultimate target, which was his mother. So let's talk about these victims. Mm -hmm. On May of May of 1972, Kemper was driving in Berkeley, California, when he picked up the two 18-year-old hitchhiking students from Fresno State University, Mary Ann Pesky and Anita Mary Lucasa, with the pretense of taking them to Stanford University. After driving for an hour, he managed to reach a secluded wooded area near Alameda, California, with which he was familiar from his work at the highway department. Everything he's done has led up to this. Without alerting his passengers that he had changed directions from where they wanted to go. It was there that he handcuffed Pesky and locked Lukisa in the trunk, then stabbed and strangled Pesky to death, subsequently killing Lukisa in a similar manner. Kemper later confessed that while handcuffing Pesky, he brushed the back of his hand against one of her breasts, and it embarrassed him, adding that he said, whoops, I'm sorry, or something like that, after grazing her breast, despite murdering her minutes later. Jesus. God. Kemper put both of the women's bodies in the trunk of his Ford Galaxy and returned to his apartment. He was stopped on the way by a police officer for having a broken taillight, but the officer did not detect the corpses in the car. Kemper's roommate was not at home, so he took the bodies into his apartment, where he photographed and had sexual intercourse with the naked corpses, before dismembering them. For Christ's sake. Mm-hmm. He then put the body parts into plastic bag- bags, which he later abandoned near Loma Prieta Mountain. Before disposing of Pesky's and Lukisa's severed heads in a ravine, <sighs> Kemper engaged in another sex act with both of them. In August of that year, Pesky's skull was found in, in, on the mountain. An, ex, an extensive search failed to turn up the rest of, rest of Pesky's remains or, the, or a trace of Lukisa, so they never found her. Aww. On the evening of September 14, 1972, Kemper picked up a 15-year-old dance student named Aiko Koo, who had decided to hitchhike to a dance class after missing her bus. He again drove her to a remote area where he pulled a gun on her before accidentally locking himself out of his car. Oh my However, Ku led him back inside as he, pre- had, as he had previously gained the 15-year-old's trust while holding her at gunpoint. Back inside the car, he proceeded to choke her unconscious, rape her, and kill her. Kemper subsequently packed Ku's body into the trunk of his car and went to a nearby bar to have a few drinks, then returned to his apartment. He later confessed that after exiting the bar, he opened the trunk of his car, admiring the catch, admiring his catch like a fisherman. Back in his apartment, he had sexual intercourse with the corpse, then dismembered and disposed of the remains in a similar manner as his two previous victims. Ku's mother called the police to report the disappearance of her daughter and put up hundreds of flyers asking for information but she did not receive any responses regarding her daughter's location or status. On January 7, 1973, Kemper had moved back in with his mother and was driving around the Cabrillo College campus when he picked up 18-year-old student Cynthia Ann Shaw. He drove to a wooded area and fatally shot her with a 22 caliber pistol. He then placed the body in the, car, in the trunk of his car and drove to his mother's house, where he kept her body hidden in a closet in his room overnight. When his mother left for work the next morning, he had intercourse with the body and removed the bullet from Shaw's corpse, then dismembered and decapitated her in his mother's bathtub. 
God. Kemper damn. kept Shaw's severed head for several days, regularly engaging in sex acts with it, then buried it in his mother's garden, facing upward toward her bedroom. After his arrest, he stated that he did it, did this because his mother always wanted people to look up to her. Oh, he discarded the rest of Shaw's remains by throwing them off a cliff. Over the course of the following weeks, all except her head and right hand were discovered and pieced together like a macabre jigsaw puzzle. A pathologist determined that Shaw had been cut into pieces with a power saw. On April 5th, 1973, after a heated argument with his mother, Kemper left his house in search of possible victims. With heightened suspicion of a serial killer preying on hitchhikers in the Santa Cruz area, students were advised to only accept rides from cars with university stickers on them. Kemper had such a sticker. Jesus fucking Christ with this guy. Oh my God. Because his mother worked at the University of, of California, Santa Cruz. The banana, the banana slugs is their, uh, their mascot, just so you know. Interesting. He encountered 23-year-old Rosalind Heather Thorpe and 20-year-old Alice Helen Lou on the U- on the UCSC campus. According to Kemper, Thorpe entered her- his car first, reassuring Lou to also enter. He then fatally shot Thorpe and Lou with his 22 caliber pistol and wrapped their bodies in blankets. Kemper again brought his victims back to his mother's house. This time, he beheaded them in his car and carried the headless corpses into his mother's house to have sexual intercourse with them. He then dismembered the bodies, remo- removed the bullets to prevent identification, and discarded their remains the next morning. Some remains were found at Eden Canyon a, le- a week later, and more were found near Highway 1 in March. When questioned in an interview as to why he decapitated he decapitated his victims, he explained, The head trip fantasies were a bit like a trophy, you know? The head is where everything is at. The brain, eyes, mouth, that's the person. I remember being told as a kid, you cut off the head and the body dies. The body is nothing after the head is cut off. Well, that's not quite true. There's a lot left in a girl's body without the head. Uh, Ah, do not like that, Sam. That's disgusting. On April 20th of 1973, after coming home from a party, 52-year-old... Uh, his mom was 52, awakened her son with her arrival. While sitting in her bed reading a book, she noticed Kemper entered her room and said to him, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now. Kemper replied, no, good night. He then waited for her to fall asleep, returned to bludgeon her with a claw hammer and slit her throat with a knife. He subsequently decapitated her and engaged in a sex act with her severed head, then used it as a dartboard. Oh my God. Kemper stated that he put her head on a shelf and screamed at it for about an hour, threw darts at it, and ultimately smashed her face in. He also cut out her tongue and larynx and put them in a garbage disposal. However, the garbage disposal could not break down the tough vocal cords and injected the tissue back into the sink. That seemed appropriate, Kemper later said, as much as she'd bitched and screamed and yelled at me over over so many years. Oh my God. Kemper then hid his mother's corpse in a closet and went to get a drink at a nearby bar. Upon his return, he invited his mother's best friend, 59-year-old Sally Hallett, over to the house to have dinner and watch a movie. When Hallett arrived, Kemper strangled her to death to create a cover story that his mother and Hallett had gone away together on vacation. He subsequently put Hallett's corpse in a closet, obscured any outward signs of a disturbance, and left a note that read, at approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday, no need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incomplete, gents. Just lack of time. I got things to do. Afterward, Kemper flees the scene. 
he drove nonstop to Pueblo, Colorado, and took um, he took caffeine pills to stay awake for the 1,000-mile journey. He had three guns and hundreds of rounds of ammunition in his car, and he believed he was the target of an active manhunt. Here's where it gets really fucking weird. Oh, cool, because it wasn't weird before. I know. After not hearing any news on the radio about the murders of his mother and Hallett when he arrived in Pueblo, he found a phone booth and called the police. He confessed to the murders of his mother and Hallett, but the police did not take the call seriously and told him to call back at a later time. Several hours later, Kemper called again, asking to speak to an officer he personally knew. He confessed to that officer of killing his mother and Hallett, then waited for the police to arrive and take him into custody, where he also confessed to the murders of the six students. What the hell? I know. He just wanted to get caught. When asked in a later interview why he turned himself in, Kimber said, The original purpose was gone. I wasn't serving any physical or real or emotional purpose. It was just a pure waste of time. Emotionally, I couldn't handle it much longer. Toward the end there, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing. And at the point of near exhaustion, near collapse, I just said to the hell with it and called it all off. Kemper was indicted on eight counts of first-degree murder on May 7, 1973. He was was assigned a public defender, and due to Kemper's explicit and detailed confession, his counsel's only option was to plead not guilty by reason of of insanity to the charges. Kemper tried, tried twice to commit suicide in custody. His trial went ahead on October 23, 1973. Three court-appointed psychiatrists found him to be legally sane. One of the psychiatrists, Dr. Joel Fort, investigated his juvenile records and the diagnosis that he was once psychotic. He also interviewed Kemper, including under truth serum, and relayed to the court that Kemper had engaged in cannibalism, alleging that he had sliced flesh from his legs of his victims, then cooked and consumed these strips of flesh in a can- casserole. Nevertheless, Ford, this, this, this psychiatrist Fort, determined that Kemper was fully cognizant in each case and stated that Kemper enjoyed the prospect of the infamy associated with being labeled a murderer. Kemper later recanted the confession of cannibalism, so it's up there, maybe it didn't happen, maybe it did. Kemper appeared to have known that the nature of his acts were wrong and he showed no signs of malice of forethought. So on November 1st, Kemper took the stand. He testified that he killed his victims because he wanted them for myself like possessions and attempted to convince the jury that he was insane based on the reasoning that his actions could have only been committed by someone with an aberrant mind. He said two beings inhabited his body and that when the killer personality took over, it was kind of like blacking out. Goodness. It doesn't doesn't hold up. On November 8th, 1973, the six-man, six-woman jury deliberated for five hours before determining that Kemper was sane and guilty on all counts. He asked for the death penalty, requesting death by torture. However, with a moratorium placed on capital punishment by the Supreme Court of California, he instead received seven years to life for each count, with these terms to be served concurrently as was sentenced at the Calif- and was sentenced to the California Medical Facility. So, he's criminally insane. He yes. was incarcerated in the same prison block as other notorious criminals such as Herbert Mullen and Charles Manson. Kemper showed particular disdain, disdain for Mullen who committed his murders at the same time and in the same area. He described Mullen as just a cold-blooded killer, killing everybody he saw for no good reason. Kemper manipulated and physically intimidated Mullen who was only 5 foot 7. <laughs> he was six foot nine at the time. Kemper yeah. stated that Mullen had a habit of singing and bothering people when somebody tried to watch TV. So I threw water on him and told him to shut up. Then, when he was a good boy, I'd give him peanuts. Herbie liked peanuts. That was effective because pretty soon he asked permission to sing. 
This that's called behavior modification treatment. He oh literally God. made this guy's fucking pet in prison. Holy Another murderer. Shit. Manipulated him into being that way. If that is not the biggest fucking dick, like the biggest big dick energy. Oh, he's just. just what the fuck is that? Wrong with this guy. Kemper remains among the general population in prison and is considered a model prisoner. He was in charge of scheduling other inmates' appointments with psychiatrists and was an accomplished craftsman of ceramic cups. He was also a prolific reader of audiobooks for the blind. He was also a serial killer. Wait, can you get an audiobook read by Edmund Kemper? We're looking it up right now. Look it up right now. Buy it right now. Amazon Prime. If it's Prime, it'll go straight to our, uh, our devices. Ooh, we don't have to wait for that shit. A 1987 Los Angeles Times article stated that he was the coordinator coordinator of the prison's program and had personally spent over 5,000 hours narrating books. Did okay. you find it? Okay. You can get them. Listen to this shit, okay? From 1977 to 1987, Edmund Kemper personally had spent over 5,000 hours in the recording booth and had more than 4 million feet of tape to his credit. In total, Kemper narrated several hundred books, including The Glass Key, Petals on the Wind, Flowers in the Attic, (laughs) Merlin's Mirror, The Rosary Murders, Sphinx, and even The Star Wars. That's from thecrimemag.com. Are you saying I can listen to Star Wars narrated by Edmund Kemper? That's exactly what I'm fucking saying to you, Jacob. If you send me that link, I will buy it right now, and we will spend the rest of the night listening to it. That's what I'm fucking doing. I'm looking it up as we speak. I cannot type fast enough. All right, I'm going to keep going. Please do. Okay. Uh, Let's see. Yeah, you just told him. He was retired from these positions in 2015 after he experienced a stroke and was declared medically disabled. He received... His first rules violations report in 2016 for failing to provide a urine sample. But other than that, he was a model prisoner. While in prison, Camper has participated in a number of interviews, like I told you, in, including a segment in the 1982 documentary, The Killing of America, as well as an appearance in the 1984 documentary murder, uh, documentary titled Murder, Col- Murder, colon, No Apparent Motive. His interviews have contributed to the understanding of the mind of serial killers. FBI profiler John Douglas described Kemper as an among the brightest prison inmates he interviewed and is capable of rare insight for a violent criminal. Okay, one of these days I'm going to talk about John Douglas because he is a pioneer in the behavioral science unit of the FBI. Okay. Yeah. He's a real-life person. He's written books. The, the, um, The character of Jack Crawford in the Thomas Harris books Mm-hmm. Red Dragon and The Silence of the Lambs and the rest of those books that have to do with Jack Crawford is based on this actual FBI profiler named John Douglas. Not only that, but the show Mindhunter, which is on Netflix, which is such a good, one of my favorite series ever, talks about, um, dramatizes um, a character that is basically John Douglas in that show. And not only that, but Edmund Kemper plays heavily in that series. And they have a guy on that show playing Ed Kemper that does an amazing job. That actor is really fucking good at He's it. He's also in the Umbrella Academy. Yes, he is. Do you see my Sharpie tattoos that I got from my daughter tonight? Oh, no, I didn't even notice. That's actually <laughs> kind of cool. I know. She goes hard with these Sharpie tattoos. We're big into Sharpie tattoos. All right. 
Kemper is forthcoming about the nature of his crimes and, is, and has stated that he participated in the interviews to save others like himself from killing. At the end of his Murder No Apparent Motive interview, he said, there's somebody out there that is watching this and hasn't done that, hasn't killed people and wants to and rages inside and struggles with that feeling or is so sure that they have it under control. They need to talk to somebody about it. Trust somebody enough to sit down and talk about something that isn't a crime. Thinking that way isn't a crime. Doing it isn't just a crime. It's a horrible thing. It doesn't know when to quit, and it can't be stopped easily once it stops. Once it starts. What? Okay. Star Wars as read by Ed Kemper is cool as shit, right? Okay. Ed Kemper reading... Book four of the Dune series. Stop it right he now. Fucking read Stop Dune it book right four. now. You know how I God feel Emperor about this. God Emperor of Dune. God Emperor of Dune? Oh my God. It's such, it's such a good book. As read by Ed Kemper. I am desperately trying to find where we can fucking get these books. I can find a list of books that he's I read. just talked about how this guy's human trash and here we are doing this. I know, but I want to hear like... He's a garbage person, and if this financially supported him in any way, I would never fucking do this. But fuck this clown. I just want to hear him read fucking well, I just Star found a Reddit Wars article. And... We're so far down this. God. I just want to know how to... How do I listen? It's right here. AV Club. Listen but... to the real Ed Kemper from Mindhunter reading audiobooks for the blind. We'll find it. If we find this, we will absolutely post it on our Instagram oh and our God. TikTok so we can figure out we how to We just talked about this. how human trash this is, and we're talking about how much we're fanboying it now. We're not... Okay. Going from one side to the other with this guy. It's pro- the problem is that I'm in, I am I love Frank Herbert, and I love the Dune series. It's one of my absolute favorite book series of all time after The Dark Tower. And so for him to be able to do this is just amazing. It's fascinating, and it's really interesting. So we want to, you know... Find the audiobooks, we want to be able to listen to it, and just get a little bit better understanding of the topic that we're discussing is how I'm going to justify okay. this. All right. I'm almost done, I promise. Kemper was first eligible for parole in 1979, but he was denied. In 1979, 1980, 1981, and 1982, he subsequently waived his right to a hearing in 1985. He was denied in 1988 when he said, society is not ready in any shape or form for me. I can't fault them for that. He was also denied in 91 and 94. He then waived his rights to a hearing in 97 and in 2002. He attended the next hearing in 2007, where he was once again denied parole. Um, a, prosen- a prosecutor named Ariadne Simmons said, We don't care how much of a model prisoner he is because of the enormity of his crimes. Kemper waived his right to a hearing again in t- 2012 and was denied parole in 2017 and is next eligible in 2024. He has influenced many works of film and literature. He is the inspiration for characters such as Buffalo Bill in Thomas Harris's 1988 novel, The Silence of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. Like Kemper, Buffalo Bill fatally shoots his grandparents as a teenager. Dean Kuntz cited Kemper as an inspiration for the character Edgler Vess in his 1996 no- novel, Intensity. The character Patrick Bateman in the 2000 film American Psycho mistakenly attributes a quote by Kemper to Ed Gein saying, you know what Ed Gein said about women? He said, when I see a pretty girl walking down the street, I think two things. One part of me wants to take her out, talk to her, be real nice to her, be real nice and sweet and treat her right. The other part wonders what her head would look like on a stick. Mm -hmm. So Kemper said that. It's crazy. That's Edmund Kemper right there. Jesus 
Fucking Christ, man. That's all of it. Holy a shit. A monster in a human body. In human skin. That is fucking wild. That's all I got, baby. Damn, son. Damn. We brought the fucking heat this, this time around. This is a good episode. This is a rough episode. Rough. This will be a good uh, season finale. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this is a season finale for us. We're going to take a break from next week. Uh, and we will be back in the new year with what we are going to be calling season, season three, three. God, of Too Scared so to Sleep. Season three of Too Scared to Sleep. All right, guys, if you're listening to this, we love you guys. We love the listeners. Like, subscribe, turn on post notifications. But more than anything, share this podcast with other people and let them know. Yes, Because we love all of you guys. We love to interact with each other. If you've interacted with us a little bit or a lot, you'll know that we are on top of our social media and we really do try to, you know, we respond to every, we absolutely respond to every message and, you know, we'll talk back to you. We're probably going to be talking, we're probably going to be playing D&D pretty soon with some of our listeners. Which is just so fucking cool. I'm so fucking excited. So yeah, if you want to become our best friends, there are positions available for you. Oh, absolutely. We need friends. All right. That's all I got, Dylan. So I do want to say one thing. Go ahead. Um, I've been looking through uh, the Ed Kemper stuff, trying to find the audiobooks. There is a small clip of him reading Flowers in the Attic that you can find on SoundCloud. Um, but from what I can find, unfortunately, uh, as of last year, none of the tapes have been digitized. Uh, so they are not available anywhere right now. Um, somebody said that there was a rumor that the... Uh, uh, fuck... The prison was going to be digitizing the tapes, but they have not done that. But you can find a short clip of him reading mm-hmm. Flowers in the Attic. I just found it on YouTube. Yeah. Um, so there is that. If we can, if they do come out, I will absolutely be posting about it because I'm very interested in hearing this. Um, but anyway, back to us plugging ourselves. Um, if you remember from our most recent live video, we have merch available. You can find us on Redbubble now. Um, you can order a variety of different things with the design that we have up there at the moment. Um, you can find us at Too Scared Pod. Um, we also have masks that are available for sale through me and Jake directly. Um, you can comment, you can email, you can DM us. Uh, we'll be happy to send those out to you <clears throat> and talk about the pricing on that. So keep that in mind. We've got merch available through us and through Redbubble at Too Scared Pod. Uh, you can reach out to us however you want and however you can. We're happy to talk to you. Uh, we <laughs> yeah. want friends. We want love. Thank you guys for letting us do this. You know, it's been a lot of fun. We're really happy that we got back into it. And we're really looking forward to bringing the fucking heat and bringing that fucking hail Satan that into the light I command <laughs> into thee. Into the shit. light I command thee. Bringing that shit for yes. season three, my friends. Yes, we will. We're coming back, baby. Coming back with a fucking vengeance that's right number one with a bullet Ready fuck to go. yeah awesome if all that's right. it for you good that's it for me my all friend. right guys we have loved you in season two highest highs lowest lows it has been a journey oh yeah this an, season. an emotional roller coaster. it has been an emotional roller coaster but we're glad to have you on it man we have gone we have gone crazy places this season yes we have all right from dylan my co-host My name is Jake, and we hope we've left you too scared to sleep.
I'm going to say something right here and I'm going to decide, I'm going to let you decide whether it needed to be edited out. But if you had a child who exhibited this behavior, the best thing you could do is drown this child in a bathtub. <laughs> Fuck. You're right, though. I mean, am, I, am I right or am I right? No, I think, I think that you're right, but you're the kind of right that's going to go in the bloopers.